Hi, everybody. Safan Molyneux from Free Domain. I'm here with Joseph M. Hugh Meyer. He's the executive director of the Center for a Secure Free Society. He's a recognized expert on matters of national security and counterterrorism and is the editor and contributor of the book, Iran's Strategic Penetration of Latin America. Yes, it kind of came out of nowhere for me, too, but we're going to dive into this. The Twitter account for Joseph is twitter.com forward slash J.M. Hugh Meyer. That's J-M-H-U-M-I-R-E. And the website is securefreesociety.org. Joseph, thanks so much for taking the time today. Pleasure, Stefan. It's always a privilege, and thanks for inviting me on your show. My pleasure. Now, well, let, let me rephrase that. It's essential to know whether it's a pleasure or not remains uh, to be seen by the listeners. But let's start with DACA. So the way, of course, it's portrayed is there are these wonderful dreamers, these children who were dragged to America by their desperate parents and now must be uh, given a path to citizenship because that is all that is just and humane and wonderful. I did kind of have the feeling that uh, Americans may have been played a little bit on their sympathies, may have been not exactly sold a correct bill of goods. And you have talked about DACA being one of the most dangerous forms of uh, a path to citizenship, one of the most dangerous forms of illegal immigration. I wonder if you could help people understand that perspective, why you hold it. Yeah. So one of the things that I think me personally, but also at my center, we've been looking at a lot are the networks that exist around the world that are involved with uh, transnational organized crime, terrorism, uh, proliferation of weapons of mass destruction. And what you've seen over the years is that these networks have converged. Basically, they're using the same pathways, they're using the same airports, the same facilitators. And what you're seeing in Latin America, which is a region that we specialize in, is that all these networks are converging and they're moving north. They're literally going from south of South America to through Central America, Mexico, on into the United States. And the problem with that is that there's a push-pull factor to this, right? So the push factor comes from some of the nefarious elements in the Middle East, uh, Iran, other places that they're trying to literally infiltrate their subversive operatives into the uh, Western Hemisphere and up into North America. But the pull factor is U.S. policy. We actually incentivize this um, on, on many levels. I think when you mentioned DACA, some of the immigration programs, that's part of it. But there's actually other parts of it. I mean, we're involving humanitarian assistance, refugee assistance, and different parts of Latin America. And it's, it's basic economics for anyone that studied economics. If you incentivize uh, uh, for refugees to come to certain countries, you will get more refugees. If you drive the incentives for more of that, you'll get more of it. So that it, it basically what we've created is typical types of moral hazards in different parts of Latin America where they're concentrating in Northern Triangle, Central America, Colombia. And, and it's becoming a problem, particularly because of Venezuela. I mean, before that, maybe it was it was already kind of a problem. It's untenable. There's, you know, un, un, 11 million undocumented immigrants in the United States. But with the Venezuelan refugee crisis exploding to the levels of a Syria refugee crisis is going to be uh, uh, untenable for, for us in, in, in this part of the world. So let's talk a little bit about, as everyone's attention has been over there in the Middle East, a lot of issues have been brewing south of the border, as you say, from South America through Central America into North America. And the failed state of Venezuela is just astonishing how little attention that's getting in the mainstream media. Well, I think that's partly because they're kind of lefty in the mainstream media. They don't want it to fail. And they were all very big on Chavez and others like him, and I guess his uh, his successor. But that's a huge issue. I mean, this country is spiraling down into economic decay and destruction, and people aren't just going to stay home and starve to death. No, when, you know, when I said that Venezuela is a Syria-esque crisis, uh, and what I meant is that it's not just emulating what's happening in Syria, it's directly connected. 
to what's happening in Syria. So if we were to define the crisis in Syria in one sentence, it's a humanitarian crisis uh, that exacerbated a tremendous amount of refugees. We're talking about upwards of 10 million refugees uh, annually um, that has a heavy amount of presence of Islamist elements, ISIS, Daesh, Hezbollah, controlled primarily by Iran and Russia. That definition now fits Venezuela. It's exact to the T, to the letter. It, it's Venezuela. And what you came to find, what we came to find through our research is that that connection isn't by coincidence. Um, there's a reason why the vice president of Venezuela is a gentleman named Tarek El Aysami, which is not a very Venezuelan name. It's, it's a Syrian-Lebanese name. Because if you look at the networks that have been developed over 50 years, this is, predates Hugo Chavez, there has been a, a, a pipeline that's been developed that snap links these two countries that are used as proxy wars to to destabilize their regions, respective regions, the Middle East and Latin America, but most importantly, to attack the United States, to get us involved in foreign interventions, because they know, they, they, they learn the lesson with Vietnam, they learn the lesson with Iraq. If they get us entangled in these conflicts, it bleeds us from blood and treasure, and it distracts us from the bigger priorities that are to our U.S. national security, which are right along the border and, and, and within our country, actually. So Venezuela is designed to do this, designed to delegitimize the United States and provoke an intervention on behalf of the United States. And here in Washington, where I sit, you're already hearing the rumblings of that. You're already hearing the rumblings among the policy crowd of trying to get, you know, help the poor Venezuelans and get involved, humanitarian programs, refugee programs. And what we don't understand is that we're, we're, it's a booby trap. We're, we're literally walking into an ambush. And how would that ambush play out? It would probably play out in the form of some type of military action in Venezuela by on behalf of the Venezuelan military that, you know, I mean, they're, they're, I mean, I don't blame them. They're in just dire need. I mean, the country's completely collapsed. Whether anyone supported Hugo Chavez or Venezuela in the past, I think no one can support it now. I mean, it's uh, one of the highest worlds of, uh, highest countries in the world in terms of inflation, highest uh, countries in the world in terms of crime and violence and murder. Um, and, and it literally, it's, it's, it's a conflict zone. So uh, what's going to happen is that the military has become anguished through this process is going to take action at some point. And the, the regime is going to provoke that action and they're going to incite that action. And when that clash happens, a so, you know, quote unquote, civil war will take place, much like Syria. And then you're going to see the refugee numbers go from two, 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 two to three million where they're at now to 10 million to where they're at in, 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 in Syria. And when those refugees move out, they're going to be there's established clandestine routes, which, you know, in the intelligence community, they call rat lines. And those rat lines will be activated, and then they're going to destabilize the rest of Latin America. Bolivia, Nicaragua, these are two countries that are connected to Venezuela that are designed to uh, essentially provoke the same kind of crisis in those countries. So they're going to remake the conflicts that we had in the Middle East, and they're going to bring it right to, uh, you know, 1,500 miles from our border. So it's going to become a much different scenario. And the Latin, I, I spent a lot of time in Latin America, traveled to the region quite a bit. They're not ready for it. The, the, their laws aren't ready. Their authorities aren't ready. They don't understand this threat. And our U.S. policymakers are finally starting to wake up. There is some good news. The Trump administration is acting on this, but they're, they're playing catch up. They're trying to literally go through, you know, almost 30 years of bad policy and trying to fix everything in, in, in a matter of three months or six months. And, it, and it's a lot of work. Let's talk a little bit about one of the elements in your book, Joseph, that I kind of suspected and there were hints of and I saw scattered around here and there, but you concentrate this into a very uh, focused narrative, and that is the relationship between, you know, hard left, atheistic, internationalistic, totalitarian, totalitarian communism that is based on class and uh, Islamism, which is, of course, a theocracy. You wouldn't imagine these to be particularly um, good bedfellows, but I guess like Hitler and Stalin, they make common cause in opposition to freedom. And this relationship between communism and radical Islam is really fascinating and frankly, a little terrifying. 
Yeah, that, that's you're, you're, you're right. It's an it's an uh, uncharacteristic alliance. It's not something that has historically been aligned in the course of the last century. But really, what happened is after the end of the Cold War, when when after the fall of the Berlin Wall, um, Iran was one of the longstandingest revolutions after the Soviets collapsed, and they literally took it upon themselves. And they wrote, there's, there, I think it's documented in the book, they wrote letters to the 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 Russians and Soviets that were leading at the time, and they said, listen, with the end of the communist revolution, you should look at us because we're going to lead the anti-imperialist movement throughout the world. And that's the common denominator. The common denominator is Iran doesn't just view themselves as an Islamic theocracy, which is what they are in the Middle East, but they view themselves as a leader of what they call the resistance countries. They view themselves as a leader of the anti-imperialist movement or what new world order, however you want to call it, in the world. And they're trying to change the system. This is what puts them in alliance with Russia and China. That triangle, Russia, Iran, and China, is also not a natural alliance. I mean, Russia and China were historic adversaries during the Cold War. They, they, I, mean, I think Russia, I believe, took some territory from China, so they really shouldn't be uh, the best of friends. But lately they have been, and the legend has been Iran. Because Iran uh, you know, provides a pretty amount of oil to China. It, it receives a lot of armament from Russia. So it's created a strategic accord, a strategic triangle between those three countries with the sole intent purpose of bringing down the West, uh, and particularly the United States. So that, so that's the common cause. You know, the old, old adage of the enemy of my enemy is my friend. That's what brought this alliance together. And in Latin America, it's where it's taking place. Most, I think, I think where you see that convergence the most is in Latin America. And it makes sense. I mean, if, if you're Iran, right, or, or Russia or anybody, and, and you, you know, you look around your borders, you see the United States. You see them in Iraq. Uh, you see them in Afghanistan. You see them in Ukraine. Uh, you see them in Japan, South Korea. So you, these countries make these calculations and they say, you know, they're in our backyard, so we got to go in their backyard. And they realize that they have a geographic disadvantage, that that was the whole purpose of the Monroe Doctrine. We have oceans separating us. But so they're not going to be able to do what we do. They're not going to send carriers to the Caribbean and kind of just permeate the, 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 the Gulf of Mexico. They're going to do it asymmetrically, subversively through covert methods. And I think that's where you're seeing particularly Iran. Iran has basically encroached the United States, both not just on the southern border, but also on the northern border in Canada. They have a tremendous presence in Canada as well. And they literally have uh, surrounded us to the point that we know that if there's a conflict erupts either directly with the United States or indirectly through Israel, that they're going to light it up. And, and, and I believe our intelligence community knows this. They're just trying to figure out how to react to it. And there is, or there does seem to be this alliance wherein a relatively free country, and, and to me, one of the great heartbreaks is Argentina, that up until like the 1930s had the same per capita GDP as the United States and has since uh, decayed away, as have so many of the other countries around it. And the idea is if you destroy the free market, then you destroy the support for the government, you create a crisis of starvation, lack of medical care. Uh, and then what happens is people panic, they either flee or they revolt, it destabilizes the the entire government. And then what happens is through that chaos, you might be able to grab the reins of power. And from that standpoint, uh, I've heard the similar stories with Iran, that it was a lot of the leftists and the trade unionists who helped destabilize the existing government in the 70s. And then uh, it was the uh, Islamic uh, extremists who took over. And this destabilization, destabilization of the free market, this destruction of the capacity of the country to flourish in any peaceful manner, then creates both destabilization and and a power vacuum that can well be exploited by people who have a totalitarian bent. No, absolutely. And you, you, hit, on, you hit on something key, Stefan, and I want to I kind of highlight that. You hit on basically these destabilizing elements that aren't Islamic. Uh, they basically just hate capitalism. They hate free markets. They hate free trade or whatever. And they make a lot of noise in their country. So let's, let's talk about Argentina, for example. In Argentina, there's a group that called the El Cabracho. 
Anyone that goes to Argentina reads Argentine politics, they know about it. Whenever you see the news in Argentina, you see a bunch of people with pots and pans banging and you know creating a lot of disturbances. That's them. That's the quebracho. And so the quebracho had a tremendous amount of influence during the period of the last administration, which is the president, the former president, Cristina Fernandez de Kirchner, who is a communist, socialist sympathizer, Chavez-like, you know, kind of a dictatorial president in Argentina. Um, who also, by the way, signed a, an agreement with Iran. Um, when you go to the evidence, when you go to the wiretaps that the Argentine prosecutors had done to, when they were ex examining some of the evidence since the terrorist attack that they had in the 90s, and you follow the evidence of all the wiretaps and, and, and the intelligence that's been provided to, from the Ar Argentine government, you find out that the quebrachos are not only financed, controlled, commanded by Iran. Uh, and they have nothing to do, like if you look at them on the surface, they have nothing to do with Islam. They don't talk about Islam. They don't preach Islam. They preach anti-capitalist me uh, uh, messages in Argentina. But the leader of the uh, quebracho, Fernando Steche, was somebody that was on the bankroll of Iran. And so Iran's very astute in what I call building surrogates. They build out surrogate states. They build out surrogate actors, and they work in the shadows. And that's why our intelligence community got confused because they don't see them. They're looking for the they're looking for the Yemen situation. Mm. They're looking for or, or Syria situation where the Hezbollah operatives parachute in and they're running around, and you actually visibly see them engage in these kind of uh, operations. You don't in Latin America it doesn't work that way. They're much smarter than that. They they build relationships with some host nations. They use the diplomatic uh, connections, the cultural connections. And then they infiltrate these uh, operatives and they, 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 they build these networks much the same way we do. I mean, our Green Berets are designed to do this as well. They can go to other countries, work with indigenous groups and kind of stay in the shadows and, and, and push back on certain conflicts. The problem is Iran's done it much better in Latin America than we have. And there's certain countries where they this is kind of, you know, you wouldn't believe you would say this in the 21st century. There's certain countries where Iran has more influence in Latin America than we do. In Venezuela, Iran has a tremendous amount more influence than the United States. Nothing the United States can do in or around Venezuela is going to make a difference in that country, but Iran can make a difference in that country. Same, uh, same to be told in, in, in Bolivia. Uh, and same can be told in Nicaragua and, and, and some of these other countries. And so what, what I've seen and what, what I think, you know, relates to your point is that, you know, when we look at some of these networks and threats that one might not think is that important, you might not think that the Quebracho for Argentina is that relevant to U.S. national security, but when you start to unravel the, 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 what's behind it, you realize it's all connected. It's connected to what's in the Middle East. It's connected to what's in Asia and Europe. So the same challenges we're facing around the world, we're facing in Latin America. But if we lose in Latin America, and this is the argument I've made here on the Hill and others, if we lose in Latin America, we lose everywhere in the world. Because uh, that is part of the United States in terms of our hemisphere, in terms of our culture, in terms of our, our, our connections. I mean, we, we just we, we can't afford it. I mean, if they take over Mexico the way they took over Venezuela, it's 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 game over. Well, yeah. it is it is an astonishing phenomenon and one of the great fog of war realities, especially if this asymmetric warfare that you talk about in the book, Joseph, that to some degree Iran is like, fine, you destabilize countries around us, we will now destabilize countries around you. And it's not something that your average reporter and it's not, I mean, I've read into this stuff for a long time and this is relatively um, novel news to me. And when you go start mucking in countries and, and regions and stabilities on the other side of the world, well, it's a two-way street. And everyone seems to forget that when it comes to foreign policy. No, there's absolutely some element of that. There's an element, you know, when we start to get more involved. Like, for example, uh, recently I was involved in a meeting here in Washington where we we're talking about Iranian influence in Yemen, right? We know that they're supporting the Huwati rebels. And so basically a civil conflict that's taking place in Yemen, and we're trying to destabilize that part. But my question is, and I'm sitting back listening just, you know, as, as I'm getting the briefing, my question is, why do we care so much about the outcomes in Yemen, but we don't care about the outcomes in Mexico? 
I mean, that, that makes no sense to me. Like, you know, the Iranians are in Yemen and everyone's going up in arms and we're investing a lot of resources to send military troops over there. But they're perhaps also in strong in Mexico working through the cartels. That, to me, is a bigger challenge. That's a bigger problem. That's something that we need to really prioritize. The Yemen thing, I'm not saying it's not important, but it, you know, there's got to be a level of priority, especially geographically as they relate to uh, American citizens, uh, U.S. interests, and, and, and whatnot. So, you know, to your point, I, 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 I agree with that. You know, some of these conflicts we don't need to be in, to be honest with you. Uh, we don't need to be in every civil conflict in the Middle East and uh, in Africa and around the world. I mean, some of these have, you know, uh, diminishing returns when it comes to getting involved. There's, you know, things that we can do and there's things that we can't do. Uh, but in Latin America, and I don't, I don't, I want to be careful how I say it. I don't, I'm not, I don't believe that we need to get involved in every single conflict in Latin America either. But I do know that the, once the networks hit this side of the world, you know, the same Hezbollah networks that are, are, you know, causing problems in Iraq and Syria, when they hit this side of the world, it's more challenging for us because we don't have the, we don't have the peer-to-peer relationships in Latin America that we used to have. Hugo Chavez did quite a bit of work. He did quite a bit of work at gutting our embassies, gutting our DEA, gutting our uh, foreign military uh, presence, and basically taking us out of the region and a point that China's coming in. And China has China's a bigger trade partner in Chile, in, in Brazil, than the United States. And so they've developed a connection that that outpaces us. Um, so in my in my in my opinion, I think there's a there needs to be a refocus of U.S. foreign policy and national security. And and at the top of the list should come the Western Hemisphere. Now, let's talk a little bit about how these cartels deal with things like DACA or, or illegal immigration, because there does seem to be a both soft and hard signals from Washington that uh, teenagers are going to be not deported. They may not even be incarcerated, which creates a protected class that can be exploited as uh, drug mules and, and other criminal elements by the cartels. And the cynical way in which the cartels, as you describe it in one of your articles, say, well, you know, the Western justice system, it's pretty, it's got a soft stomach. It's very sentimental. It's not going to go against illegal immigrants and we kids and dreamers. And we've got the Democrats pumping up the sentimentality to befog Western clarity of vision. So how are the cartels? exploiting the weaknesses in the southern border to help uh, escalate the, the opioid and drug crisis? Yeah, uh, Steph, I think first we have to kind of understand what is a cartel and the kind of the criminalization of it. So, you know, I think from the you know, perhaps from the American view or, or from, you know, definitely from the U.S. government view, you know, th- these are networks that are involved in illicit activity and therefore we should completely dis- we should just disregard them from any kind of kind of policy frame, framework that we have in those uh, in, in this part of the world. But the thing is, in Latin America, it's a little different. The, the optic on it inside the region is a little different because, frankly, it has to do with the society. Um, you know, in many of these countries, particularly in Central America, it's not so much that everybody runs to the cartels because they want they had you know they, they watch narcos and they have this dream of being this famous Pablo Escobar or anything like that. But it's more because the incentives are aligned that way. Um, you know, in any given society, you have you know free enterprise, the formal enterprise that we all engage in on a day to day basis. In Latin America, you have a lot of informal enterprise. You have an informal economy that is not you know really regulated or engaged in it, and it's done in a very ad hoc manner. But the, at the extent of that, you have the illicit enterprise. That's the criminal enterprise. And so, whenever like these countries with weak institutions, a lack of rule of law, a lack of protection of property rights, when they push the incentives, the basic economic incentives, more for predation in the illicit enterprise, it takes away from production, and the cartels know that. So the cartels, I mean, if you, another word for a cartel is an entrepreneur. So some of those guys are very entrepreneurial in understanding how to get their products, 
across. So they look at U.S. policy and they look at all the vulnerabilities in U.S. policy and they exploit those policies, not for better or worse or for good political or for political sympathy, just for the reason that they want to get their products across. So if they, if they have all the incentive in the world because, I mean, cocaine in itself is a $365 billion global industry. So they have all the incentives in the world to want to do this. And so that what they do is they look at programs like DACA. They look at vulnerabilities on our border. They look at vulnerabilities with our U.S. asylum system, particularly in Canada, actually. They have quite a bit of connections with the, the cartels have quite a bit of connections in Canada as well. They look at all these vulnerabilities and they exploit them for, for the, to, to, make, to make their bottom line. And I think in, in the U.S. perspective, we look at this from a very political perspective, but we're not from that pragmatic perspective. You know, at the end of the day, is this incentivizing cartels or is it de-incentivizing cartels? And a lot of these programs, what they do is they just create bigger incentives for them to, to move their, their, their illicit networks. And it's not to say that every DACA member is a, uh, you know, member of MS-13 or, or is connected to a cartel or anything like that. But it, it could even be, I don't know what the numbers are, but say it's even a small percentage or small minority. And this comes true with terrorist networks in, 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 in Islamic neighborhoods and stuff. Even if it's a small number, it takes very little to do a lot of damage. Uh, and, and they've proven that, you know, in, in, with the opioid crisis, I mean, in New England, I mean, there may be, you know, less than 1% of those networks that are involved, that are actually Mexican cartel members that are involved in the distribution of the opioids. But look at the damage that's being done. I mean, the damage that's being done is tremendous because once, it gets out of control. It gets out of the hands. Uh, uh, the networks are established. The distribution centers are are created. I mean, then it, you know it's just a matter of time before it, it it just takes over society. So the same thing that's happening down there is not happening up here, and and that's by design. And so much of anti-U.S. Sentiment and, and activities, particularly with regards to asymmetrical warfare, appears to be designed to basically destabilize the U.S. and drain its treasury. I mean, obviously, the war, uh, the wars in the Middle East are costing Americans a lot more than they're costing, you know, the, the guys in flip-flops in the back of a pickup van, as one of my recent uh, interview guests noted. And this idea that you destabilize a country, that you uh, nationalize industries, that you uh, debase the currency, that you destroy people's capacity to survive in a modern economy, then that, of course, you, you try and channel those refugees going north, and then they pour into America, where, you know, a lot of them are going to end up in welfare, they pour into the schools, they pour into the healthcare system, a lot of which is paid for by the American government. And it seems it's almost like a war on the sustainability of the US dollar. And there is some of that that's just hatred of America, because it's relatively free, because it has a free market and so on. But also, it is just, well, if America runs out of money, then it can't be an imperialistic power anymore. Well, yeah, there's definitely an element that is, you know, trying to provoke conflict that the U.S. gets involved in and spends. I mean, Iraq's the, just a shining example of that right now. I don't know how much money we've poured into Iraq, but, you know, that conflict, the, the benefits that we receive from that conflict or getting involved in that conflict or provoking that war is much uh, smaller than any uh, uh, than the cost. The costs are tremendous, both in, in blood and treasure. But I want to I unpack something. You, see, you mentioned the term asymmetric war. And it's something you hear a lot, both here in Washington and around the, the academic community. But what is it for your audience so they can fully understand that what that means, right? Warfare in and of itself is just compulsion. That's all it is. It's compulsion. If you could compel your adversary or your enemy to bend to your political will, you win. And you don't have to use military force to do that. Uh, you can use any kind of tool or, or an instrument of national power. Asymmetric means just it's a disbalance, right? There's an asymmetry to to a relationship. So asymmetric warfare is a is, is a strategy. It's 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 a doctrine in, in, in military terms. It's called fourth generation war. It's the most modern element of warfare that allows you to use different kind of tools to bring down a more powerful military. 
So when you have a more powerful military, you're not going to attack them, you know, with a military. It doesn't make any sense. That's why why everybody's looking at Iran for their nuclear weapon. Uh, their nuclear weapon, quote unquote, is actually probably in Latin America and is not an actual missile. It's the network. Uh, and, and so what, what are the central elements of an ace to win an asymmetric war? Well, there's two. At the end of the day, there's just two. Political legitimacy and public opinion. If you're losing on those two grounds, you're going to lose the asymmetric war. And the question that we have to ask ourselves, is the United States growing in public opinion? Are the values of the West growing in public opinion? And is it establishing more legitimacy, not just around the world, but also in our country? You know, are, are more people running towards the free market system and embracing those values and adopting them uh, you know, both into their policy, into their votes for politicians, or are they going more towards the kind of a, a protectionist and uh, uh, socialist light uh, um, uh, status model that uh, some pre- previous governments have implemented in the past? And I'd argue that we're 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 in a cross crossroads. Uh, I mean, America was built on you know these these same values, the, the Western values. Uh, of protection of life, liberty, and property. So I think those values are still here, but they're being challenged, and they're being challenged from abroad, and they're being challenged from within. And and the uh, you know the Russians, the Iranians, they know this, and so they're going to exploit every aspect of that, including. And this is something that I've come to recently. I'm on the on the drug stuff, just to kind of bring it back to that. I have a question. You know, there, there's a lot of uh, discussion, and, I, and I've done a lot of work on Hezbollah's ties to the cartels, and but I, I have a question, and this would be a question I would pose to the to the intelligence community. Is, is Hezbollah's involvement with drug trafficking just for profit? So they're just trying to make money so that they can fund their efforts in, in Syria and in Lebanon? Or are they using this strategically as a destabilizing element to not just destabilize Latin America, but to also move that destabilization into the United States? And it reminds me of something a Quds Force operative said, that Quds Force is the Special Operations Division of the uh, Islamic Revolutionary Guard of Iran. Something a Quds Force operative said just last year, he, in, 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 in a statement he said before some of his troops, he said that it doesn't matter what the United States does in the Middle East because we have the networks in the United States to, to, to counter that. And even if they deport them, it doesn't matter because we have the networks in Argentina and Mexico. And he actually pointed out Argentina and Mexico because we could bring them right back. So he, when he said that, it was kind of illuminating to me because that's asymmetric warfare. That That's uh, by definition asymmetric war. I don't think you're going to see Iran attack us from a military kinetic level, but you will see them attack when they start lighting up all these – uh, networks, and you might not even know it's them. This opioid crisis—I mean, who? How did that all happen? How did that get from you know nowhere to in three years get to tremendous le- uh, levels of of distribution and consumption to you know things we haven't seen in in more than a decade? So, so these are questions I would ask to the intelligence community. Well, it's a strange thing when you think about it. How much effort and blood and treasure and lives had to be spent by communism in the Vietnam War, where you had millions of North Vietnamese uh, destroyed with a bombing campaign that concentrated more bombs in one small country than were dropped in all of World War II in order to kill, what, 70,000-odd American soldiers. And, of course, to drain a lot of American treasury and to stimulate an anti-war movement that had a lot to do with communism as well. So think of the amount of effort and, and blood and treasure that had to be spent to fight Americans uh, in Vietnam. And now, and this was, of course, over many years, now in one single year, you can kill more Americans with drugs than the entire Vietnam War cost. And and not only are you not spending millions of lives, you're making billions of dollars doing so. And you can't win against those kinds of incentives in the long run. I can't imagine, Joseph, how that's even possible. Yeah, so that's an interesting point because why, why don't we – so let's, 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 let's take that, right, for, for at least as a hypothesis. Let's say that drug trafficking is usually more than just a profit-making mechanism for cartels. It's also being used strategically by our enemies to basically destabilize uh, US, our society. 
So let's take that. So this makes a lot of sense to me in terms of what the regimes were doing, getting involved with the cartels in Latin America, particularly the Venezuelan government. Uh, so Hugo Chavez, uh, in the period that he was president for 18 years in, in Venezuela, he pretty much completely co-opted the institutions of his country, particularly the armed forces, the, the military, and he put it in bed with the drug cartels from throughout the region, the Mexicans, the Colombians, the Bolivians, and, and, and everybody else. And he created, like there's a term for it, they call it the Sun Cartel, because the military officers were sun insignias on their uniforms. So he created this, cart this Venezuelan government military cartel, right? So everyone looks at that, okay, there's just another drug trafficking element. Okay, this one's part of the military, but whatever. It's still doing the same thing. It's building you know, profits for a broke government. But what if the purpose of Hugo Chavez wasn't necessarily to build it as just a, you know, a, a revenue-generating uh, form of, uh, from illicit revenues for his government, but he was looking at to tie it up with Hezbollah and Iran as a way to attack the United States. And this makes strategic sense to me because I think there's a complete, and here in Washington, complete miscalculation as to who Hugo Chavez was and what that revolution that he created was all about. And I, and I tell a story to kind of get people, and I give a lecture to different militaries around the world, and, and, and I give a story to get people to connect these two, and I talk about a military officer who had political ambitions, who, who became president and used his power of presidency to nationalize resources, get in bed with drug cartels, uh, and then to use oil as a way to buy out other countries around the neighborhood under the name of nationalism and under the name of creating a revolution around the around his region that redefined the identity, social cultural identity of the people in that region. So I give that story, and, and in Latin America, everyone's like, oh, he's talking about Hugo Chavez. No, I'm talking about Gamil Abdel Nasser from Egypt. That's what the Nasserist movement was. That's what the Pan-Arab Nationalist movement was. And what Hugo Chavez in his uh, uh, self-proclaimed Bolivarian revolution was an extension of Pan-Arab nationalism. More than anything, uh, an extension of socialism or sister Cuba. It, it had all of that. But it was definitely an extension of Pan-Arab nationalism. It was a way to bring that military insurgency into the United States. It's a very strategic thinking. It's asymmetric warfare. And, it's a, and, and you know, when Hugo Chavez said, I'm an enemy of the United States and I'm going to attack and bring down the United States, no one took him serious. No one took him seriously. Here in the, in the United States, nobody said that that was a credible threat, except for a handful of folks that were in the Department of Defense. And I believe those folks were right. And now we're seeing the dividends of that. Because now what Venezuela has become, and this is the, you know, the top of the conversation with the connections in Syria and everything, is a strategic element on behalf of Islamist movements, particularly by Iran, to basically create a way to uh, put a forward operating location that attacks the United States. And we're going to feel that pain. I was involved in a meeting uh, last year as Venezuela's, uh, you know, the protests and everything were at a, were at a, were at a high point. Um, and this was a meeting uh, with uh, folks inside the White House. And somebody said, uh, if Trump is not careful, this is going to be his Iraq. And this is going to be the, the point of inflection where he's going to have to decide, do I send military forces to quell this or do I you know, find another way? And I think if we get there, we're way too late. So, And I appreciate you talking about it and others talking about it because this is something I think this is like a sleeping giant uh, literally on our doorstep. And let's talk a little bit about you, – you've written that Iran's efforts to export the Islamic Revolution – and destabilize all of Latin America are centered around the crisis in Venezuela. Now, the crisis in Venezuela, you know, the communists always saw the socialists or the leftists, the central planners, the collectivists, they always come to power saying, well, we just want to help the poor and we just want to make everyone richer and we want to help everyone get a good education and so on. It's never true because every single time 
it's tried. It ends exactly in this kind of disaster. And anybody who tries this kind of collectivism knows exactly where it's going to lead. It is an excuse to destabilize and to radicalize because when people can't eat, they tend not to think very rationally and they tend to react to the most uh, powerful sophist and, and rabble rouser in the neighborhood. So this crisis, Hugo Chavez did not want to help the poor. He wanted to destroy Venezuela as it was. Uh, and, and therefore, uh, it ended up in this situation, which now is uh, exploitable by anybody who wants to radicalize and weaponize the population. You know, no, absolutely. But I just want to, you're reminding me of a joke that once a former diplomat said, and he said, when they said, you know, who, Venezuela, Hugo Chavez wants to help the poor and the narrative that he held about, you know, the oppressed and, 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 and the impoverished and, and Venezuela, he said, okay, sure. He wanted to help the poor so much. He created millions more. Um, so he just expanded <laughs> the poverty in, in Venezuela to the point that it was, no, but I agree with you. I don't believe he, uh, cared about the poor. It was a very Maoist Leninist strategy to break you down. You would change direction. Sorry to interrupt, but if, if you really cared about the poor, when the economy began to fall apart, you would change direction, but they Absolutely. never do. They always double down. No, that, and, and I think to your point, I mean, it, it was a very Maoist Leninist strategy to build, break it down to later perhaps build it back up. It's it's a revolutionary uh, strategy. So he, he, I mean, there was no secret that socialism was not going to work in Venezuela. They knew it. We knew it. Everyone knew it. And so when he, he depended a lot on oil prices and he knew that commodity wasn't going to last forever. So when the, when the, when, when oil prices spiked high artificially, they, they essentially just went on a spending spree and they spent not just in Venezuela, but all throughout Latin America. And they used the state owned oil enterprise as basically a slush fund for all kinds of tin pot dictators around Latin America to build them up and prop them up into power. But I, I what, to your point, what, what I think is most important on that is that he did it very strategically and he aligned himself with some of the most powerful anti-U.S. actors around the world, not just the informal actors like Hezbollah and and, and uh, even Al-Qaeda and other elements of the Islamist movement, but also uh, nation states, uh, mainly Iran, but also Russia and, and China and North Korea. And all these countries is a hotbed inside Venezuela. But there's something that I've learned recently that makes me think, so I can tell people, I think Iran's in, in more powerful than all those other elements in Venezuela. And people look at me a little bit twisted-eyed because they say, well, Ru Russia has a lot of armament. They, I mean, the, the Russian military armament's literally on the streets of Venezuela. China pretty much is their main benefactor. They've uh, uh, bought all, all the oil and credits and loans. But I said, okay, if you look at it from the Westphalian sovereign kind of perspective, yes, this is true, right? On, on, on the way we look at a, a representative democracy, Russia and China are the big actors. Cuba's on the ground. But if you look at it from how they look at it, which I don't believe they believe, they don't follow our laws. They don't follow our doctrine. They completely look at this in a different way. The, the clandestine network that they developed inside Venezuela, it's not only a communist clandestine network. It's an Arab clandestine network. And that Arab clandestine network, which is also socialist, but is also Islamist, and is also other things, nationalist, is also other things, is tied to the Middle East. This is why in, in Syria, for instance, um, you know, I did some research in the Middle East last year and in a, in a small city on the southwest border of Syria, along with along the border with Jordan, there, in, in the Assad controlled region, there's a city called Asawaida. Asawaida has 250,000 Venezuelan born dual citizens. It's 65 percent of the population of that city. You go to that city. My researchers went to that city. You go there and they speak Spanish in the middle of Syria. They eat arepas. They, they, they dance salsa. And so this is this. I mean, that doesn't happen by act. There's no tourism migration. There's no, that's not a natural migration. That's a clandestine network that's been developed between Syria and Venezuela to move people back and forth. And Chavez did this. He let this happen under his watch because he knew strategically this is how he's going to bring down the United States. And, and, and to your point, I don't think the socialist policies were by accident. I think that they knew what that was going to do. 
And Venezuela is right where Venezuela wants to be, which is in complete chaos. But if you control the chaos, you're not unstable. Everybody else is. And you create a situation, this bifurcation of society that has occurred, Joseph, where you have increasing numbers of people highly dependent on state handouts for their survival, at least as they perceive. And then you have this growing resentful class of people who are being forced to fund it all. And this setting up of massive transfers of trillions of dollars through the armed might of the state creates a form of civil civil war that often degenerates into real civil war when the money starts to run dry because you have... Two groups of people, this is a big generalization, but I think it has value of two groups of people, one of whom is being forced to pay, the other uh, feels that they must keep this money going in order to survive, they must keep this money flowing. And so you have people voting to keep their property, you have people voting to take away other people's property, they're no longer part of one society, they are really on opposite sides of that sort of fiery mode of statist power. Yeah, it's classist structures that were built over time, and, and, and you're 100% right, he built a big population within Venezuela that's completely dependent on the Venezuelan government. They used to call it the Bolivarian missions. There are all these missions that were said, mission for housing, mission for health, mission for eye surgeries, mission for everything. And so he created all these things and he, and he did it very strategically because the core to all these missions was a thing called mission identity. And mission identity required that all Venezuelans have a biometric ID card. And what that does is that creates population control mechanisms. The Cubans are great at this, to control dissidents, to control defectors, to be able to have pretty much a population under some type of technological control where you can track movements and, and, and communications. And so they did this in Venezuela. Venezuela has now become a non-permissive environment for anyone that wants to go there and pretend they can play James Bond or whatever and, 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 and figure it out. And so what that happens is when that structure breaks down, which has pretty much since, since 2014 and uh, oil prices plummeted, the, the state structure broke down you create the conflict. And then when you create the conflict, you create the divisions, you control different parts of those conflicts, and then everyone pushes out. And that's why the refugee situation is something that was so important to them. Because it's not just about what Venezuela wants, what the Venezuelan government wants, it's also about what the Iranians want. And what the Iranians, when they say that we're gonna export the revolution, what they literally mean is we're gonna build clandestine networks and routes, and we're gonna move subversive agents all throughout the world. Uh, and in Latin America, that, that, that launching pad or that gateway is, is in Venezuela. I mean, there's uh, a couple cases that I've been involved in with law enforcement that have to do with um, uh, identities. Uh, CNN did a documentary on this, but it, it actually was mischaracterized because they, they attribute it more to passports. And they said that the Venezuelan government was issuing passports or selling passports to uh, members of Islamist movement, particularly Hezbollah. But it wasn't just about the passports because they were building birth certificates, uh, national ID cards, property records, bank records. And so they had folks that had Venezuelan surnames, you know, could be uh, Manuel uh, Torres, uh, but he was really Mohammed uh, Ibrahimi. But we, he has a birth certificate in Iraq, but he has a birth certificate in Venezuela. And so when he comes into the Western Hemisphere, he uses the Venezuelan documentation, and there's no database in the world that can figure that out because it's legitimized by the state government of Venezuela. And so that's something that's a tremendous concern because, you know, I don't think – well, we're tracking – uh, I think our homeland security is tracking uh, Islamist elements and, you know, they call them special interest aliens, folks that are coming from the Middle East or uh, countries of interest that are coming into the Western Hemisphere and might be moving a port or step across along our ports, our airports and borders. But are you tracking all the Venezuelans that are moving around the world? I don't, I don't, maybe I hope you are, but maybe you're not. And in that sense, it's, that becomes a tremendous counterintelligence challenge, human intelligence challenge and something that's beyond our control. So in, in, in that sense, there's a lot of strategy that was involved. And what they did, uh, the Bolivarian movement, what uh, Hugo Chavez did 
in Latin America. And, and I believe I believe the good news here is that I believe this administration, the Trump administration, is paying attention to this. I mean, just in the year or 18 months or so that he's been in office, I mean, he's already sanctioned several of the top officials, or if not well, most of the top officials in Venezuela. He's, you know, pretty much rel- relinquished any kind of rekindling of diplomatic relationship with Cuba, who's kind of a mothership of all these uh, networks in Latin America. He's obviously gone after Iran uh, uh, and Hezbollah and, and, and in the Middle East. And I think, you know, you know, people like Ambassador Bolton and other folks, uh, Secretary of State Moncompeau, these are folks that have been informed on this over over a lot of time. So I believe they have the right intention and they're in the right frame of mind. The question is, are we too late? You know, can we play catch up? Can we really? And I don't believe this is a challenge that the U.S. government has to do on their own. This is something the society has to really get serious about because we all have a role in, in, in the national security of our country. Well, this, of course, is one of the big problems of these endless wars in the Middle East, of course, is that by the time it comes to turning your attention closer to home, uh, which is pretty much anywhere else in the world. But when you turn your attention closer to home, there is a war and conflict exhaustion that has set in to the American public to the point where they say, if somebody says, let's go and engage in Venezuela, I think people would be like, you know, we've just had the longest war in American history uh, in, in Afghanistan. Iraq was a disaster. And now Syria is is a mess. And there is this sense of war exhaustion, which is uh, one of the horrible side effects of engagement in the Middle East, is that then they can begin to push for destabilization closer to home. And when push comes to shove, there may not be a lot of a lot of shove left in the American spirit. Yeah, and that's, that's a good point. And that's what I was talking about when it comes to public opinion. I mean, that's that's that is an advantage for for the Islamist elements in, in the Middle East and in Iran. I mean, they know that they know that they're not going to support uh, the public won't support too much public in, or foreign intervention in Latin America. They just don't have the appetite for it, uh, and so they can exploit that. Uh, they can exploit that, and you know, I, I think you bring up a kind of just a big grand strategy point on on our foreign policy, which is, you know, since September 11th, uh, I think we've become. Uh, a little too focused on the Middle East. I don't want to say that. I don't want to diminish what's happening in that part of the world. I think there's a lot of things that are important, and there's things that are obviously directly impacting things like U.S. Oil, things that impact like oil prices and uh, um, 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 you know U.S. military presence and others. But we have to have some level of a doctrine for what we do on this side of the world. Uh, for what we do in the Western Hemisphere, because uh, you know there was a former the Monroe Doctrine is still technically valid and in there, but it, over time it has seems to be it was just a pa- piece of paper because no one's really enforced it. It's uh, become and, the world's policeman nonsense. Yeah, essentially, it's just become you know a, a kind of a backwater uh, of U.S. foreign policy, and I think that that lack of focus has uh, created a tremendous vulnerability. You know, when I was I used to be in the Marine Corps when I was uh, in a previous life, and when I was in the Marines. Um, uh, I used to do martial arts. I was part of the martial arts instruction course. And when you do kickboxing, boxing, or any kind of combat uh, sports, uh, you learn a central tenant in, in combat, which is it's not the hardest punch or the hardest kick that knocks you out. It's the one you don't see. The one you don't see is what knocks you out uh, nine, nine out of ten times. And I believe in, in, in geostrategically and geopolitically in the world, that punch and kick is being developed in Latin America because no one sees it. No one cares about it. No one's looking at it. Uh, the Monroe Doctrine is there, but no one pays attention to it. And so, the, the, you know, basically the U.S. and the enemies of the United States around the world have made that calculation. They figured that out uh, and they're developing their capabilities. Well, and if we look at the migrant crisis, which is, I think, really a crisis to a large degree of economic opportunism and, and a desire to suckle on the teat of the welfare state, it is, uh, of course, easier 
to get from Central America to North America than it is to get from Africa to Europe. And so I think while everyone's out there looking at the European migrant crisis, there is this gathering storm, of course, south of Mexico and, of course, within Mexico to some degree as well, where you may literally have, as you point out, millions of people swarming to the border. And right now, a caravan that was tracked for weeks before it even got across was uh, helped across. And so is there any stomach to enforce borders along the southern border? And if there isn't, and the destabilization continues and the millions start pouring northwards, then that's going to be it for uh, American sustainability, which is already hugely threatened by all these unfunded liabilities, this huge national debt, because those people pouring in are all going to need resources. There aren't going to be enough. And the population is going to turn on each other. Oh yeah, the entitlement crisis is huge. I mean, that's a probably a different conversation. But you know, yeah, if we don't uh, get a handle of those uh, unfunded liabilities, uh, you know, we're, we're going to just bleed ourselves to death through Medicaid and Medicare and Social Security and welfare. Um, but just kind of to, to the point on Mexico, um, no, I know absolutely. And 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 you know, there's there's cases in the past that you can study that show you a little bit of how these networking operations move. I mean, there was one case, for example, in I believe it was 2011, 2012. It was a Lebanese. Uh, cleric and imam who was based, he was actually based in San Francisco, one of these sanctuary cities. His name was Rafik Laboon. Uh, and he was arrested in Merida, Mexico because he was managing a human smuggling operation that was taking folks from the Middle East, uh, and changing their identity when they got to Belize, giving them Belizean documentation and then moving all to Tijuana into San Francisco. So the FBI, the, the Mexicans caught him, they, they extradited him, he's now in U.S. custody. But he's just a drop in the bucket. He's just one individual of a tremendous uh, network. But I think the the border security. I, I support you know the president's initiative to create uh, you know a, a stronger border security along our southwest border. But that needs to be layered all the way down south. I mean, we got to protect the border. Not only just us, us and our partners have to also do a lot of work to protect the border of the Mexican Guatemalan border. I mean, that's a very permeous border. That you know, that's you know, if they get past that border, that's one step closer to getting the United States. And even I say, even go further back, go go ahead, go to the Venezuelan Colombian border. We need to look at that border and see what's you know crossing through that border because there's a tremendous amount of refugees that are coming out of there. And I'm, I'm, I can tell you, I can guarantee the Colombians don't have eyes on all all that's passing through the uh, you know their, their borders as well. So well, sorry, just just interrupt. Uh, let me ask you this question before I forget, Joseph. Would you say that if America was able to secure its southern border, Mexico would have far less of an incentive to leave its own borders open? Because if you just the pass through state from people going from Central America to to America, if you just the path through state, it's less important. And in fact, if you hate America, you might even, as I think they do, facilitate the passage of some of these refugees because you hate American imperialism, you hate American freedoms, or however it is that that coalesces. But if they can't get from Mexico into the United States, isn't that a great incentive for Mexico to seal up its own borders? Well, you force them to pay attention to the problem. For sure, because they know they're, they're not ignorant. They know that this is happening. They seen they knew they arrested Rafi Kalbun. They know that these individuals are passing through their country. This was actually told to me by once by a Mexican official who will remain unnamed. But he said, you know, we know they're here, but this is not our problem. This is your problem. You guys are the, they're, they're not after the Mexicans. They're not trying to attack uh, the Mexican government. They're after the U.S. government. And and you know, uh, as long as you know, you know, they're not directly affecting our national security then we don't see why we have to spend the resources to contain it. So to your point on that, if we contain it, you force the Mexicans to deal with it because with the there's a famous attack in Latin America with Hezbollah called the Army attack in Argentina in the 1990s. And what that showed us is that, that they will also attack Latin America to be able to start to you know, destabilize the region and also uh, attract the United States. And so they're not – like Latin Americans, they may think that they're – 
uh, 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 pervilous to this threat, that it's not designed around them and they're not the center of the conflict. But uh, frankly, you know, the, 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 the actors, the illicit actors don't care. Uh, if they think that they have to do a terrorist attack in Peru uh, because it, it, it'll have strategic implications that benefit their their, their, their message or their, or, or their efforts, they'll do that. Uh, and, and I think the Latin Americans need to wake up on it. I mean, one of the things that I work on quite a bit with uh, our partners in Latin America is that the fact that in, in that part, in this part of the world, there, there, there isn't adequate legislation, anti-terror legislation. You know, oh, that's amazing. Brazil, you said in your book, there's no particular laws regarding terrorism. Yeah. There is now, uh, as of last, as of 2016. So, the, you know, book was closed in 2014. So they did pass one and actually saved them. Because ISIS was going to attack them during the Rio Olympics, and that's a real operation. ISIS was planning. Uh, ISIS was actually planning to emulate what they did in Paris, France, in 2015, and they had communications that the French authorities uh, intercepted that showed that they were implementing that same plan in Rio de Janeiro to attack the Summer Olympics. But the fact that they pa- they passed that law in April 2016, they arrested the operatives in July 2016. They passed that law just in time. To stop that attack, so uh, Brazil has it. But even so, there's about half the countries in Latin America have anti-terror legislation. Uh, half the countries don't. Of the countries that do, only I think is believe is six countries define international terrorism. And of the six countries that define international terrorism, none of them designate Islamic terrorist networks. Hezbollah is not considered a terrorist in any country in Latin America. You could go into any country in Latin America, and you could set up a store, and you could call it Hezbollah United Front. And no one will say anything. They'll say, oh, it's a clothing uh, company or a textile brand. They, they don't have that uh, understanding of the jihadist movement the way that we, we do here in the, in the United States and in Canada and other parts of, uh, of the West. And I think they need to wake up to that. And I think we can play a big role in helping them do that. We can educate them. We can uh, uh, connect them. Um, and, and we can train them. But there's got to be a prioritization and an effort. And I'm, I'm involved in a case in Peru that actually involves the Hezbollah operative. Who was uh, he was caught um, potentially planning a terrorist attack in that country that uh, some of the prosecutors there believe was uh, aimed at the UN for a climate change conference that was being held in Lima, Peru in 2014. Well, this operative, when he got caught, he did three things. He said he, he admitted, "I'm from Hezbollah." He said, "I have a fake passport, and this is the Hezbollah gave me this passport from Sierra Leone. I'm not from Sierra Leone. I'm from Lebanon." And they asked me to take a thousand pictures of uh, you know routes and airports and soft targets and embassies. And I don't know why they asked me to do it. They asked me to take these pictures. And because of the laws in Peru, usually what that would require is just get deported. Because the only real crime you committed, because being Hezbollah is not a crime, uh, taking pictures as weird as they are is just a crime. the passport, right? It's the passport. So yeah. most of the time they just say, okay, get out of my country, never come back, and, and red flag it and go. In the case of Peru, though, they do have a, a better bit stronger terrorism law, so they held them. They held them uh, on pretrial detention, and then they held up the trial. But when, we had, when they had the trial, the first question that the judge asked is, what is Hezbollah? Uh, and, and, and he says, you know, you know, they couldn't understand that he just admitted to becoming part of an Islamic terrorist network. Um, so I think there's a lot of work to be done in Latin America on that front. And that's something the U.S. could actually take a leadership role. I think the Trump administration could take quite a role at educating this region and telling them, you know, you're part of this global war on terror as well. Right. Let's talk a little bit about, uh, I don't know how it's pronounced, Sucre, or the S-U-C. R-E. This alliance, this virtual currency is really fascinating, not only for, of course, the desire to get out of the dollar reserve currency zoo, but also uh, the money laundering possibilities, the access that Iran could get through these kinds of things into American markets. It's one of these very kind of vague, soft, not really seen by the West kind of alliances, but it it strikes me as I think it strikes you as, as very central to some of the risks. 
Yeah, the sucre is a uh, is a term of uh, well, it's actually the former currency of Ecuador, and then they dollarized, I believe, in two thousand. Uh, but it became now more recently into the term of an accounting unit, a virtual accounting unit that's being used among uh, a certain set of countries in Latin America. And throughout the whole entire conversation, what we're really talking about is a collection of countries, and they have a name. They're called the ALBA, the Bolivarian Alliance. That that that's who they are. So it was led by Venezuela and Cuba, but it also involved. Bolivia, Nicaragua, Ecuador, and several Caribbean satellites. So Ecuador took during the, you know, I see about the period of 2009 to 2013-14, they did a, quite a bit of effort at restructuring the financial architecture among these countries to be able to do trade where they don't have to use uh, the U.S. dollar if not needed. They could do it through their own exchange houses, through their own local currencies and their central banks. And what the Sucre was was an accounting, a virtual accounting unit that would denominate that trade. Uh, and what it did is it, it created pretty much uh, – it made certain transactions invisible to the United States because our ability to monitor money laundering or threat finance is our ability to look at dollar-denominated transactions. If, if they're not in dollar-denominated transactions, we have to rely on the host country to provide that information. So in this case, Venezuela and Ecuador, it wasn't possible money laundering. I mean 25 or 20, 20 to 25 percent of the foreign trade transactions that were done between these two countries, Venezuela and Ecuador, using the super system were completely laundered. They didn't exist. It was just used to, uh, in paper, but never was any kind of commodity that was being transferred between the two countries. And when I examined this structure, what I got really worried, which is not just the, the laundering, money laundering concerns, but I, I looked at a strategic angle because what I found out was the people that were bankrolling this effort was China and Russia. And what that made me interested, because they, at the same time that this is happening in these collection of countries in Latin America, China is working on, a, uh, on an alternative SWIFT system. So SWIFT is the uh, wire transfer system that we use to communicate uh, through banking networks around the world. But our, uh, China is creating a, a system called SEPS, which is an alternative to the SWIFT so that they can do their trade transactions without using any of the U.S. central uh, U.S. financial authorities. Um, Russia is creating cryptocurrencies. Uh, they're creating their own state-backed cryptocurrencies, which to me de defeats the purpose of a cryptocurrency. If it's run by a central government, then it's not really decentralized. And then that element was then modeled into building in Venezuela. So Venezuela launched their own cryptocurrency called the Petro. And, and, and I think this is – I don't know if this is completely in its, in its final stage, but if you take these different elements, you know, state-backed cryptocurrencies, alternative financial you know, wire system – and in a, a virtual accounting unit, you can create an alternative financial infrastructure, basically an alternative monetary system that's completely in the shadows, that we have, that the U.S. dollar has nothing to do. And when you want to do it, you, China would just deplete its reserves and, deflate, and, and pretty much crash the U.S. dollar. So it, it has strategic implications of what they're doing. Uh, but I think it's things that, you know, uh, I think are far beyond um, – I don't believe they're ready to implement this, uh, you know, tomorrow. Uh, but I think they're definitely working on it. Well, I think that the goal of cryptocurrency in Russia and in other places is simply to avoid the coming implosion of the US dollar, if at all humanly possible. You I mean, the, the fact that it's anonymous is nice for there already are those solutions for cryptos. But uh, I think everyone's just trying to get off the US dollar Titanic. Now, let's talk a little bit about what to do. This is going to be surprising information to, I think, a lot of the listenership to this show. And they're going to be like, oh, great, you know, now Iran's in Venezuela and Hezbollah is coming across the border and Islamic extremism is taking root in Central America. And there's going to be, of course, a sense of unease. And, and the best way to deal with unease is, is proactive action. So what would you suggest that people do who are the joyful recipients of this new information? Yeah, so I think there's plenty of things. I think one is we have to kind of have a back to the basics when it comes to U.S. foreign policy. I mean, this if you look, if you go through the history of U.S. foreign policy, I mean, the kind of the Jeffersonian 
version of foreign policy. It wasn't to do with, you know, going to foreign adventures in all corners and pockets of the world. It had a lot to do with the Western Hemisphere. It had a lot to do with protecting your neighborhood, creating a safe neighborhood around the United States and, and around uh, uh, the North North America so that we can be able to prosper and, and, and have peace. And I think that element has completely disappeared. I mean, our, our foreign policy is now pretty much focused in the Middle East. Uh, some 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 interest in, in does, Europe. It does seem to be a challenge to say no to Israel for a lot of well, American yeah, politicians. Yeah, there's a lot of interest in Israel. There's a lot of interest in pivots to Asia and and, and, and things like that. Where so I think there's got to be a back to the basics of understanding what foreign policy meant, what was the strategy among the founding fathers for our foreign policy, and why why is Latin America, Canada, why is the Western Hemisphere important? Uh, not just to U.S. peace, but also to you know global stability. I think there's a reason for that. So I think that's first and foremost. Second is we have to be smart on Iran. Uh, I think there's a lot of folks that there's a lot of folks that just underestimate Iran's capabilities. They think that Iran may just be kind of a, a quack revolution from uh, back in the 1979s, 80s, and that they haven't uh, done anything to dominate the Middle East. But if you did put it from this context, Shia Islam, which is you know Iran's a Shia-backed uh, movement, a Shia Islam represents about you know maximum 15% of the Muslim world, but controls probably 75% of the Middle East. You know, that, that, that's, that's, that, that's an interesting uh, perspective because, you know, the same thing that they've been doing in Iraq, in Lebanon, in Syria, increasingly in Yemen, now Turkey, uh, to create, to control the Levant, the way they've used that, that's an Iranian strategy. And that same subversive strategy to take over the Middle East is now being implemented in Latin America. Well, and, and they've got a lot of walkabout money from Obama. Yeah, well, you got 150 billion in in, in escrow accounts, uh, you know, to get unfrozen from sanctions relief, and I think they got 1.6 billion in cash, hard currency cash that got sent in pallets to the to the republic. But uh, no doubt, some of that money went back to Hezbollah, and I, and I guarantee some of that money went to Latin America as well. Some of them pay pay to pay back some of their patrons in in the region. But I think that for, for your listeners and for everyone on, on a solution side, the most important is we have to get smart about our strategy with Iran. It, it's not just all about their nuclear program. It's not just all about their, you know, uh, you know, efforts in Syria and in Yemen. It, it's it, Iran is a global revolution. It's a global movement. It's, it considers itself the leader of the anti-imperialist movement. It's connected to all the communist socialist networks around the world. And we have to understand their capabilities to be able to and have a proper threat assessment, a non-politicized threat assessment uh, to be able to deal with that. And then, and then lastly, I'd say we have to get started on immigration. Um, I mean, it, it's it's going to happen. It's not a uh, it's not whether Joseph wants it. It's not whether Stefan is warning about it. It's 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 already happening. And and the Venezuela crisis, whatever uh, worries that we have because of the migration flows, the, uh, the illegal migration flows from Central America, Mexico to the United States. Now it's going to be uh, uh, in a magnitude of a hundred once the refugee crisis in Venezuela really explodes. Well, I also it's, wanted to mention as well for a lot of uh, the older people in in the audience. It's a different kind of thing from communism because when communism took over in a country, it sealed its borders and you had to risk machine gunning and barbed wire and landmines to get the hell out of a communist country. That's not how communism and that's not how destabilization is, not how socialism works these days. The way that socialism works these days is destroy the country, open the borders and point everyone at the West. And with the welfare state and with, you know, I think ridiculously sentimentally over generous refugee and, and child refugee programs and so on, the it is no longer that uh, a totalitarian government takes over a country and creates a giant fiery moat filled with alligators and machine guns to keep everyone in. Now, it seems like the destabilization is in order to push people out because now human migration has become a weapon rather than a flight. 
No, nowadays uh, crises are designed to be exported. Uh, they're, they're not. They're not designed to be just contained within uh, a country. And, and I think that brings to the point that these networks and, and it, it, the Southern Command, which is the military uh, combatant command that is responsible for Latin America, they have a good approach to this. They don't just look at this as like Islamist networks and uh, criminal networks and drug cartels. They call them just Ill- uh, threat networks, transnational threat networks. And I think that's the, that, that's the right approach. We can't just look at this as in one silo versus another silo. And the government loves to compartmentalize, so they have all these analysts that do different types of works, and they never talk to each other. So that's got to go. Uh, and they got to look at the problem just from a holistic per- perspective and look at all these networks and how they're moving. And and uh, and, I, and I agree to, 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 to the point of, you know, the way this is being exported, and not just on a strategic level, but on a tactical level, is tremendously interesting because it's not all just the people movement. The ideas travel faster than people, and the ideology is actually moving much quicker into the United States through the Internet and through other places, and it's radicalizing folks, not just for the Islamist side, but on all kinds of separatist movements, uh, communist movements. It's like a rebirth of radicalization that's taking place in the United States and, and, and in other parts of the world, and that's happening – uh, in concerted with the movement of these people. So it's basically an asymmetric approach to bring down uh, the West. Well, and I don't think it's too far to say, and this is certainly my perspective, I'd like to get your thoughts on it. I believe that immigration is the most foundational national security issue that faces the West at the moment. Yeah, well, immigration is where it begins. Uh, uh, you know, it, it, nothing, national sovereignty depends on national borders, and our ability to protect those borders determines if we're a sovereign state. If we lose that ability, you're no longer a sovereign country, and you're basically connected to both the good things that happen in the world, but also the bad things. Uh, and I think that's uh, fundamental to to any kind of national security strategy. But um, oh, and to say it's it's one thing to uh, open your country to people if your country is well loved, if your country is well respected, if people are moving to your country because they love the values that you manifest and so on. It's quite another thing when you've been the world's policeman and caused the deaths of millions of people around the world, fermented revolutions, overthrown legitimate governments and so on, and now waged war in the Middle East for 17 years, then opening your borders when you're not well liked. You know, it's one thing to throw a house party if you're popular. It's quite another thing to throw a house party if you're not. uh, And the outcome tends to be quite different. Yeah. You just gave me a visual of throwing like a house party in the house party in the middle of the worst neighborhood in Baltimore. Yeah. <laughs> the KKK is opening its doors to Black Lives Matter. It's going to be great. I mean, this is yeah. not how things things can work. So, Joseph, what is your major concern as things are really unfolding or unraveling in Venezuela? What is the worst case scenario in your mind? So I think Trump is making a lot of good movements in, in national security on immigration and other places. I mean, he's obviously not getting exactly where he wants his deal with Congress. But I think there is a miscalculation happening around Venezuela. And that make, make miscalculation happens because the intelligence community, the law enforcement community, everybody that's involved with our national security has a premise that they believe that the Venezuelan government wants to maintain power. That the whole design about the criminal terrorist element in Venezuela is just about keeping stable power so they could, could, could keep their dictatorship in the country. And I don't believe that is the premise. I believe that's a false premise. I believe Venezuela is designed to be a crisis in a war. The Venezuelan revolution, the Bolivarian revolution, wants to export itself, and it wants to create the conflict to do so. And so if, that, if that's the case, if the case is that and Chavez proved this, Hugo Chavez, if all Hugo Chavez cared about was being alive, he wouldn't have uh, ran the stump in his last year when he was in full-blood stage four cancer, uh, and he would have gotten medical treatment, proper medical treatment, and, and, and try to survive. But he decided to uh, sacrifice himself uh, politically and then physically when he died to advance the revolution. So when the Bolivarian Revolution explodes and the crisis, the refugee crisis really takes numbers that are untenable, upwards of 5 million, then 
uh, I think everybody's going to realize that that was a conflict that was brewing in the making. So in my in my opinion, uh, the Trump administration, all the elements of national security, they have to prepare for that. They have to prepare for the scenario where Venezuela explodes and it creates uh, a, ref- a flood of refugees that similar to what Syria did to Europe uh, into North America. And we have by that point, we better hope that the border security uh, is, is, is solved. Well, and I would argue that the Democrats, who seem to have as great a hatred for the traditional American system as many foreign operatives, are probably going to try and prevent uh, any kind of war because I think in their heart of hearts, they desire the same outcome as Chavez. You know, and what would be sad is if the if Democrats or whoever starts to basically understand that, you know, they look at the Venezuela as just a humanitarian situation and wants to basically incentivize to have more refugees coming to the United States. I'm not against helping the refugees, but the refugees are victims of this. It just takes one time that a terrorist attack anywhere in the world happens, and then you look inside the terrorist pocket and there's a Venezuelan passport. That's going to destroy it for all Venezuelan refugees, and that's being prepared to take place. And if that happens, then uh, we're going to be in worse problems than just uh, uh, you know, a refugee program or, or, or an immigration issue. All right. Well, I really, really want to thank you for your time. I want to remind people to check out the book. Put the link to the book below. Uh, Iran's Strategic Penetration of Latin America. It's, um, well, not for me, a very hair-raising read, but for obvious reasons. Uh, but uh, the Twitter account is twitter.com forward slash J.M. Humeyer, H-U-M-I-R-E. And the website is securefreesociety.org. I really, really appreciate your time. I hope you'll come back and, and keep us up to date on the progress because there does seem to be some movement on this stuff in the new administration. Absolutely, Stefan. And pay attention to Venezuela. I'll come back on your show and when, when hopefully with good news on that. All right. Thanks, man. Thank you.